This spring, we're looking at the, the opening chapters of John's gospel. And in this section, we're, it's really the, the book of signs. Where Jesus is giving us demonstrations, pictures of who he is and what he has done. The, the latter half of the gospel will rush quickly toward the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's when we start to see those signs be fulfilled. We see what is signified. And so, so here in John chapter 2, we've already seen the first miracle of Jesus, the first of his signs, performed at the wedding up in Galilee in Cana, where he turned water into wine. Now we shift scenes radically. We move from Galilee into Jerusalem. We move from the the far regions of of where the Jews had settled to the very heart of the the faith. We walk with Jesus into the temple itself. And so we see here who Jesus is and why he came. I'm going to read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. John 2, beginning at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word to us today. Father in heaven, we come today with, with different emotions, with, with different questions. Some of us, Lord, come with burdens, with fears, with anxieties. And so, Lord, I pray that in your word we would find comfort. Lord, some of us come and we are comfortable and we need your word to upset and challenge us to confront us in our sin, to expose our selfishness. But Lord, each of us needs to hear your truth, and so we give you thanks that through your word we have the hope of the gospel, that through the ministry of Jesus we have the arrival of your kingdom, of our Savior. Father, answer our questions. Give us comfort. We come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Pastor Jason Meyer describes the frustration of his son who just wouldn't listen to his parental correction. They had talked through his son's misbehavior, but the son remained belligerent, 
They discussed the right way to respond and what expectations should be, but the child is not listening. So dad asks his son, do you know the way to your room? Um, yeah. Draw me a map. Like, a map of our house? You want me to draw a map for you to find my room? Yes. So he draws a simple map of the house that they're in. Hands it to his dad. Dad rips it up into little pieces. He tears the paper and drops it on the floor. And then he tells the son, draw me another map. Now confused, the son is like trying to figure out what, the, what is happening here, but draws another map. The, the same little outline of the house with directions from the living room they're sitting in to his bedroom. Dad immediately tears it up again. At this point, his son is frustrated and, and begins to cry. Why would you do that? You don't really want to know. You don't even want the map. Now dad has a teachable moment. Son, this is how I feel every time I explain things to you and you don't listen. You've been given instructions and then you immediately tear it up and walk away from me. At this point, the son confesses his failures. Dad and son are, are reconciled. But, but dad realizes that perhaps the object lesson wasn't meant only for his son. Because as he walks out of his room, he's overwhelmed by guilt. His own guilt. And so he walks into his bedroom, even though the map didn't get him all the way there. He gets down on his knees and confesses his own sin to God. Father, forgive me for all the times that I have prayed to understand something. But I've not been serious about obeying you. Sometimes we don't learn the lesson until we can see it. Like, to just hear it isn't enough. Sometimes we need a big demonstration, like a, a father who rips up the instructions repeatedly in front of his son to let him see the, the frustration. One commentator in, in talking about what Jesus does here in the temple, in, in, in creating a whip and driving people out, in, in throwing over the tables and pouring out the coins, he, he calls it an act of prophetic symbolism. That it wouldn't be enough for the people to hear the message of Jesus. They needed to see it. That he, he needs to act out the truth of God's word right here in the temple. Give them a visible picture of God's truth. Enacted imagery to help us understand. And maybe to bring us up short. And to learn a lesson. The crowds may have ignored Jesus' teaching. But everyone would see his work in the temple. He caused a commotion because of the seriousness of the situation. And the hardness of of our own hearts. Now, maybe before we, we go too far in, in looking at the passage itself, we just need to be reminded of the context. Like, where is this in the gospel? Obviously, we're, if, you, if you just looked at the gospel of John, you've got 21 chapters. We're only in chapter 2, so we're at the beginning. Now, that should strike us perhaps maybe as unusual because the other gospels, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each put this story, this account of Jesus going into the temple in the very last week of Jesus's ministry. Mark gives it to us most clearly that, that on, on Palm Sunday, on the, the day, on the Sunday before Jesus' death, he enters as the triumphant king, enters into the temple area, and then goes back the next day on Monday before he's arrested on Thursday and killed on Friday. So it's just days before he dies that this event takes place. Now, it is possible that, that there could be two times that Jesus used the same prophetic symbol like the father who rips up the paper twice in front of his son, or comes back to it years later for his son and and gives him a a reenactment. And certainly there are times that Jesus repeats events. I mean, he feeds 5,000 people, and then he feeds 4,000 people. And we don't just get that because one gospel tells us about one and one tells us the other. No, both Matthew and Mark tell us about both feedings. So sometimes there's repetition intentionally. Jesus' teaching often repeats itself in different contexts. In Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount takes place on a mountainside. In in Luke's gospel, it takes place in a flat area, which, well, that makes perfect sense. He's an itinerant preacher taking the same message, so of course he's going to repeat it. Like some of my favorite preachers repeat little nuggets or illustrations in different contexts to give you the, the truth. But each gospel writer only describes one clearing of the temple. So for each gospel, this happens once. And actually, even the most conservative of scholars would say that that perhaps John moved the chronology. He was there. He knows exactly when it took place, but he he changes the context. He he decides, I'm going to tell you the story out of order because I want you to hear it. I want to emphasize this for you. He's not trying to trick us as readers, but he's making a theological point. And of course, that's the way much of we, that's how we learn much of history. You don't merely learn events day by day as you go through. You learn thematic structures. You would learn about something that happened, if if you were reading a biography, something that happened at the end of a person's life, and then thematically you would see how that, oh, you see how that was also part of her childhood. Or even if I was telling you about, about just what happened to me last week, or if I told you about a vacation, I might tell you about something that happened at the very end, and then, and then jump around, and it, it wouldn't be because I'm trying to confuse you. I'm trying to help you understand. And so, so John might be putting this event here at the beginning of the gospel to highlight its significance, to give us a thematic understanding of Jesus' ministry. And so then we would have to ask, then what does this tell us about Jesus? Why place it here in context. Well, let's, let's look at what, what happens in this story so we can see what it teaches us about who Jesus is. The, the incident, while, while, while full of commotion and chaos, is, is rather straightforward. Jesus is there for the Passover, the great celebration of the, the Jewish people, that Old Testament promise of God, that, that the, this is the last of the miracles that God performs to rescue his people from Egypt. He, he will send an angel of death to kill the firstborn of every household, except he will pass over the homes that have sacrificed a lamb in the place of a son. And so the Jews annually celebrate this, bringing their sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is there, and, and he finds people selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and money changers. Now, 
in, in some sense, those are necessary activities in the vicinity of the temple. If you've traveled from a great distance or traveled even across the empire, then you're not going to drag a lamb from home with you because that lamb won't be a perfect lamb by the time it gets there. It'll be bumped and bruised through the, the baggage handling as you, as you move from place to place. And so you're going to bring out your perfect lamb for sacrifice, and so you're going to need to buy it close by. And so it's appropriate that what you would need would be offered right here in Jerusalem. And it's not that Jesus is, is worried about that, that people are getting ripped off, that the money changers are unscrupulous, that they've, they've got multiple sets of weights, or that, that the prices are way too high. No, n- none, of that takes, none of that is mentioned by Jesus. Even the changing of money as people come from around the empire would be necessary. So you could bring a temple tax, a, a, a tax of pure silver. But Jesus takes a whip, drives everyone out. It's because, and look at verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple. Animals and people as well, sending them on their way. He, he pours over the coins of the money changers. He flips the tables. It's, it's great commotion. He, he makes the, the people take the, the cages for their pigeons, carry them, get them out of here. He's driving them out of the temple. That the the issue isn't that this isn't a necessary part of the economy, that it's not even a useful uh, trade that's being offered to, to the visitors to Jerusalem. It's the problem that it's happening in the temple. Now, it's not happening in the building itself. It's, it's happening in the temple courts. And, 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 and remember, think of the, the temple it's sort of like in, in these concentric areas. The Holy of Holies is visited not, not now, but only by the high priest once a year. The, the temple itself is only visited by the priest. You don't actually go inside. Then the, then the temple, then the areas for the, the Jewish worshipers. And then these outer courts, the largest of the courtyards, an open courtyard with walls around it for the nations. And so what is happening here, the people of God who are meant to be drawing the nations to the temple, the, the promise given to Abraham thousands of years before was that his family was chosen to be a blessing to everyone. Except that there's no room for the nations to gather. The place that they would be allowed to come and worship is now filled with the the chaos and commotion of this, this marketplace. And surely that too impacts the, the Jewish believers who move through these courts through the stench and the stink, the clamor and the chaos, trying to come in to worship. They've reduced worship to commerce, to mere transaction. There's no opportunity for heartfelt worship, and they're excluding most of the world. They're excluding the Gentile nations. And so maybe here we need to ask a a question Of course, you didn't bring sacrifices with you. We have a once-for-all sacrifice in Jesus. But have we made worship merely transactional? Or is it personal? Are we in the, 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 the category where if I show up, I do my time, I pay my tithe, and I get on with it? I get out of here. I, I move along. And, and, and I don't mean that, that you necessarily fall into the trap of thinking and changing your theological system, just that the routine becomes only routine. That the, 
invitation to worship becomes mere obligation. That you're really not here for God, you're just here to get this done and move on with your week, to get on with what really matters. Or maybe when we think about it in this corporate aspect, the, the fact that, that Jesus, I mean, so violently overturns tables, it takes a, a, a whip to drive the, the animals out. He, he clearly cares about the inclusion of the nations in worship. That, that people who have yet to hear the truth of who God is and what he offers to us, the sacrifice that he offers in our place. I mean, do we exclude people from worship here? Do our, does our insistence on our personal preferences keep people out of here? Do I say, well, I'm not going to change that because I like it the way it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to concede on song choice or music style or, or structure of a service because I want what I want. Do we expect that people, before they would show up at church— that they should make themselves ready to hear the gospel. That our neighbors and friends should, should, should have a certain political alliance or allegiance before they would be welcomed here. Do we expect that, that people would share our, our opinions on cultural questions, that they would share our, our, our hobbies, our interests, our educational status, that they would be more like us before they would be allowed to show up? Or do we... See that part of what happens here, part of the gathering of the church is, yes, so that we can individually worship with God, but that we are meant to make this a place where people could gather, where they could encounter truth, where they could find who Jesus is. See, the disciples, when they, when they see what, what is happening, I mean, because Jesus explicitly says in verse 16, he says, take everything out of here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is meant to be a place of, of worship. And then verse 17, it, it tells us his disciples now remember what was written down by the psalmist a thousand years before. Zeal for your house will consume me. That, that zeal for the purposes of God, the desire for what matters most to God is what's most important to Jesus. You know, this is a quote from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 9, it, it, the, the psalmist David, the great king of Israel, says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What, what the disciples do, though, notice they, they put the words of the psalmist, King David, into the mouth of Jesus. They don't, they don't change it to say, zeal for your house has consumed him. I mean, they, they leave it in the, in the first person singular, as if Jesus himself were speaking the psalm. And, and if you flipped to Psalm 69 and, and read through the whole psalm, it's a, it's a psalm of the king, the anointed king of Israel, crying out to God for rescue. Psalm 69 verse 1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. It's a psalm of crying out in agony to God, in suffering. And this is not the only place in the Gospels where Psalm 69 will be quoted. Psalm 69 continues verses, in, in verse 16, Answer me, O God, for your steadfast love is go good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. 
Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. It's the heartfelt, desperate plea of the Messiah for God the Father. And as the psalm continues in Psalm 69, verse 21, we read that they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now the gospel writers note this explicitly when we get to the cross. That Jesus, that there's this moment when, when a sponge is filled with sour wine and placed on Jesus' lips. And the gospel writers announced this had to happen to fulfill what was said of the Messiah. And so now, even here in John chapter 2, the disciples are understanding it's the Messiah, the anointed king who stands before us. So when Jesus, when Jesus enacts this, this prophetic sign for the people, it's because he's the one with absolute authority and power to do this. It's, he's the one who has the right to declare what should happen in this house. He says, this is my father's house. That makes him the son of God. He speaks the words of the Messiah. He is the anointed king. He's the one with authority. And, 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 and we almost wonder, why doesn't anyone stop him? Like, he's one guy. Like, wouldn't it take just a couple of, like, these, you know, shepherds with their big giant sticks to sort of stop this one lunatic? And, and even when the, when the crowds show up in verse 18, when the Jewish leaders come and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're getting at this question of authority. Really, who do you think you are? Because no one stopped him because they recognized something dramatic was happening, not just in the chaos of the moment, but the only person who would show up here at the Passover and expect to have authority over the temple must be sent by God. And so when they ask for a sign, they're asking for him to prove his authority, to prove his power. When the disciples say, zeal for your house will consume me, it's not just the zeal in, in overturning the tables. It's not just the, the sweat that would have been on his brow for, 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 for rushing people out of the temple. It's the zeal for the very purposes that God has sent. Because Psalm 69 is not merely about cleansing the temple courts. Psalm 69 is about the Messiah dying in the place of sinners. One commentator says his zeal would be the death of him. Because the purposes of God are central to the life and ministry of Jesus. It's showing us who he is, God's anointed king with power and authority, even over the worship in the temple courts. And again, why would, why would John put this here at the beginning of the gospel rather than leave it in its chronological spot in the last week of Jesus' life? Well, maybe it's so that we don't just rush past it. John knows, I mean, he's the last of the gospel writers to put this down on, uh, on, on parchment for us. So he knows you've already read the other gospels. Like, you're not confused about the chronology. It comes forth in your Bibles because it comes forth in the order that the church would have received it and read it. So he puts it here at the beginning to, to let us see who Jesus is. 
And maybe setting it with the, the contrast of the first sign of Jesus, the miracle at Canaan, let us, lets us see who Jesus is. We have the quiet miracle at Cana. Only the servants, the disciples, know what Jesus has done. Everyone else just thinks, the, wow, the wine has gotten better as the party has gone along. Here, everyone sees what happens. It's a public spectacle. Even if you weren't in the temple courts that day, you surely heard the rumors. Because, now, it was a big enough commotion to cause chaos in the courts, but a small enough commotion that we don't see a, a legion of Roman soldiers come down upon them. But the story sh surely would have spread around Jerusalem, a public display. One pastor says that, that, that the contrast between the wedding at Cana and the cleansing of the temple is the, the contrast between Jesus as a party animal and Jesus as the party pooper. See, we like it when Jesus shows up and we receive blessing. The gracious Savior who celebrates at the feast of Cana. We like it when, when we understand that, that that's who he is. The God of, of glory who pours out his blessing, his undeserved blessing upon us. We like that part of the story. But we don't like it when Jesus shows up and overturns parts of our lives. We don't like it when Jesus elbows his way in and says, but I have absolute and complete authority over everything here. But surely if Jesus is who he claims to be, then we should expect him to do both. Then we need both the gentle comfort and blessing of Cana and the radical disruption in the temple courts in Jerusalem. We need a savior who will show grace to us because he is the God of grace. The savior who shows his mercy to us and forgives our sins. But we also should expect confrontation when he shows us the depth of our sin. What is it in your life that Jesus wants to overthrow? What is it in your life that you, you hold too tightly and say, oh, Jesus, you can change all of that, you can do that, and Jesus, I, I'd love for you to have free reign in all the other people in my house, all the other people that I work with, all of my extended family, like, you can fix all of them, but this, this I want to keep. What is it that you're trying to keep from the authority and power of Jesus? Because yes, we, we, we have the joy-filled first miracle, the first of Jesus' signs is that you are invited to the great feast of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. His grace is lavish, but he is the king who demands your worship, who has authority over you. And that's why when the Jews, Jewish leaders come to him in verse 18 and demand another sign, they're asking about the authority of Jesus. But actually, the, the actions themselves were the sign. He's already told you who he is. He is the anointed king, the Messiah, the great son of David, now here to take control of the temple. He is the son of his father, the one who, for whom the, the, the zeal of God will control his life. He has dominion over worship. 
but yet they want another sign, a miracle. And, and, and look at Jesus' answer. In essence, he, he sidesteps their demand for a, a miracle, but, but he presses the theological truth of what we've just seen deeply upon them. In verse 19, he offers them a challenge. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, it's not hard for us to understand the confusion of, of the, the, the Jewish leaders here. That they're looking at the physical temple, the walls here, the, the stone pavement, the, the building of the temple itself, and thinking, you want us to knock this down, and then in three days, like, that's nonsense. It's taken 46 years, and, and actually, at this point, it's not even done. Like, they're still working on it. Like, it's a, it's a project that's ongoing. I mean, it's, it's one of those construction projects that just kind of lingers, and you just kind of work around it. Like, you just kind of deal with it. Like, it, the scaffolding's always up, isn't it? And, and in three days, you're going to do this? Now, John, because he knows that we'll be confused, because he himself was confused in hearing this the first time, he, he in verse 21, tells us what Jesus means. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. But he admits in verse 22 that, that he and the other disciples, they didn't have this figured out for, uh, until after the resurrection. See, this is, this is an accusation against the Jewish authorities. He tells them, destroy this temple. Destroy my body. But that's the very thing they will do. That's the very thing that, that even this cleansing of the temple will provoke them to do. And, and they'll actually bring this, this accusation at Jesus' trial. Some of the other gospel writers note that, that false witnesses come forward and claim that Jesus said he would destroy the temple. Now, first, it's a, it's a false claim because Jesus never actually says he would destroy it. It's a conditional. If you destroy it, I'll rebuild it. He, he doesn't say he would destroy the temple, but it's also a, a false claim because the witnesses, they don't even know what they're saying. They've just been bribed on the side to come in and, and try and make Jesus out to be the bad guy. And yet, it's an accusation against them, but it's, it's also a, a promise. Jesus wasn't speaking about stones and structures. He was speaking about the very purpose of God. You will destroy this body. You will think you have won. But I will raise it up in three days. In the words of Jesus is the great promise, the promise that the disciples don't understand until after it happens. I mean, as you go through the gospel, Jesus will say it directly to them. He will say it explicitly that he is going to die and rise on the third day. Now, admittedly here, it's still a little bit cryptic. So we can, we, we can understand their confusion. But he'll keep saying it more and more directly as the gospel goes along, and they still won't get it. And yet, after it happens, what does verse 22 tell us? His disciples remembered. They remembered this moment. They remembered this promise. An accusation against the, the Jewish leaders that if you destroy me, if you attempt to end me, if you kill me, then I will raise this temple again. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
They understand the promise that God had given them before. Promises contained in in Psalms like Psalm 69. Promises announced by the the prophets. And then they, they attach to those the words of Jesus and realize the anointed Messiah is standing right here. What would it take for you to believe? Would you, like the leaders who show up in in verse 18, demand a sign? Like if Jesus could perform this magic trick, then I'd believe. If Jesus would only do this, then I'd believe. What kind of miracle would it take? Because the miracle that Jesus offers here is the resurrection. It's a conquering of death itself. We read in our confession today that that if Jesus was not raised, then everything you've been doing today is a complete waste of time. Futile, pointless, foolish. But Jesus Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is the promise of the Savior, the one who gave his life for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of resurrection, for the power of the gospel, that Jesus is the one who comes with the the words of miraculous hope, that he pours out grace upon us, but that he also comes to condemn us, to show us the guilt of our sin. So Lord, for those who have listened to your word today without a saving knowledge of Jesus, I pray that they would put their trust in him now, that they would find in Jesus your very words, your promises, that if we put our trust in you, then our sins are forgiven, that we can have life everlasting with you, the joy of resurrection. Father in heaven, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.